Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This Ben Jarofsky Show Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers Local 126 in District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. It is Thursday, December 5th, 2019. Lord knows when you're listening to it. It's a podcast, of course. As I always do, I ask my distinguished guest on bonus time to introduce himself. So this is a familiar face and voice in the Ben Jarofsky Show. Guest, introduce yourself. Uh, Mr. Jarofsky, this is your uh, your legal counsel <laughs> at your service, Jim Coogan, That's correct. trial lawyer. <laughs> Robert Mueller agrees with you on that. Yes, he's at our service. It's become a very popular feature uh, as a bonus segment. Jim used to come on the show at a regular time, but for some reason we switched to bonus times with you, and this has become a very uh, popular feature. There's too much feature. to talk about. There's too much to talk about. We just sort of let the clock go here. Uh, and uh, generally I say, how is this legal? Uh, and then I ask Jim uh, certain questions because it's baffling to me. I didn't go to law school. I'm not a lawyer. How any of this stuff is legal. Uh, and uh, so it, the timing is perfect, uh, Jim. Yesterday, there was uh, the um, the Congress, the Judiciary Committee and the Congress, uh, House of Representatives, uh, it sort of held like a, a seminar on constitutional law. They had four distinguished law professors that they trotted in, uh, sort of the opening round of the impeachment inquiry uh, into uh, regarding Donald Don. Donald John Trump's crimes and misdemeanors uh, regarding the uh, Ukraine and his shakedown of the president of Ukraine. Um, let's just start with the sort of a general uh, question about yesterday's performance and the four law professors. What's your, your general uh, view of how, what, how they uh, handled the questions, what they represented, what issues uh, they articulated and so forth? Well, in spite of or what I would disagree with all the hue and cry from Republican congressmen about why are these witnesses here? These aren't fact witnesses. None of you know anything about the facts. How many of you can raise your hands and say you witnessed any of the, the facts that occurred in this case or have any factual testimony? Uh, that's all just window dressing and loud noises because uh, I actually appreciate the purpose for which the Judiciary Committee brought these witnesses in which was to set the stage, basically to say, we're going to do this in a public forum rather than just have somebody draft a memo saying, what is impeachment? What are the historical underpinnings for this process? Why do we have it? Why is it in the Constitution? How do we decide whether we should move forward with it? And how do we define whether the president's conduct fits with something that should be impeached? It made perfect sense to bring in constitutional scholars who have spent their entire careers learning the Constitution, learning the history surrounding it, the Constitutional Congress, the Federalist Papers, the things that defined, you know, where do these terms come from? Because obviously, as, as those who, are, who look into Supreme Court opinions and things like that know, um, it's not like the nation was just born out, out of a big bang, out of a void. Uh, there was a, a legal context in which the Constitution was written. It was, and we brought in uh, folks don't really think about this very often in their day-to-day -day lives, but we brought in uh, a British common law system, and there were all kinds of common understandings of what terms meant, of what what things like bribery meant, or, and what was a high crime and misdemeanor. So those folks were there to offer the context for all that, because that's what they are scholars of, is knowing what those things are. Because they're, you know, that's that's quote-unquote ancient history. It's 240 years ago in history now. So it's not something that's present in most people's day-to-day -day lives and even lawyers' day-to-day -day practices. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought it, as a preliminary thing, I want to say, I thought it was very appropriate to start by defining the process. We don't do this frequently in American life. 
Congress doesn't do this very often. So it makes perfect sense to start out by saying, what is this about? And we're doing it in a public forum. We're doing it on the record. And Congress persons can ask questions of those witnesses, try to, you know, drill down to whether or not they could have gone after whether they were qualified even to talk about it, but you didn't hear a whole lot. No. Well, let's get to that, that point. I, I listened to you right there. It just popped into my head. You, of course, uh, in your uh, real life, when you're not on the Ben Jarofsky show, you're a trial lawyer and uh, personal injury expertise. Do you do the similar thing when you're before a jury? Do you sort of lay the groundwork, the framework for why something is illegal or why there are rules that are established to protect people from like a faulty product or a, uh, a driver, a bad driver or something like that? I mean, do you do you do trial lawyers, not just you, but trial lawyers in general, do the same sort of follow the same sort of practice with the jury? Absolutely. And it comes in various forms because, number one, every trial, whether it's a criminal case or a civil case like the ones I handle, you're going to have the jury instructions rendered to the jury before they deliberate. And actually, the rules now, uh, we've changed our trials a little bit, I think three years ago. The judge reads them the instructions before the case starts. So that gives them the foundation, like basically to say to them, hey, here's what negligence means. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things you will have to decide at the end of this case, whether or not defendant X was negligent in the performance of something and whether they failed to do a thing or did something in a way that was uh, defective. Similarly, that uh, or beyond that, the judge has those instructions, but depending on what the case is, you know, we, we either have something like a car crash case where you, there's sort of a presumption that most people know the rules of the road, but you still have to define what they are in some fashion. And there will be an instruction somewhere in there that'll say there was at the time of this incident, a statute that said you can't run a red light or you can't go over the speed limit or you must stop and avoid hitting a car when there's a red light and there's somebody stopped in front of you. So, so there's a definition there. Yeah. I mean, how else would they do their job? Yeah. So the notion of a Republican congressperson, congressman or congresswoman, uh, hectoring the, uh, the the lawyers, the law professors who showed up on the grounds that uh, they were not firsthand observers of what went down in the White House when Donald John Trump uh, called the president of Ukraine uh, is a little like uh, a lawyer on the, on the other side of the court hectoring the judge who's giving an instruction to a jury. Well, Your Honor, you were not in the car when the accident took place, so... <laughs> You don't have any standing. I mean, and you know what they could end up, I suppose there could be, um, you have previously identified some of the trial tactics of, of a Johnny Cochran back in the OJ case and talked about how some of the theatrics to, to distract from the real issues were successful because, hey, when you're a criminal defense attorney and your guy probably did it, you got nothing to lose. So you could just try really anything open up the blue skies and just come up with whatever you can brainstorm in terms of tactics. If somebody was to spend half their closing argument in a criminal case, just attacking whether or not there should even be a law for, you know, burglary or murder or something like that. I mean, it would be akin to that. They probably wouldn't direct it at the judge because that might get them in trouble for the next time they have to try a case in front of that guy. But really there, I mean, that's why the analogy here is, it's not so much attacking the system, which they, which most of those Republican congressmen with the loudest voices were absolutely doing, but even attacking something that's a very benign and simple and naturally logical step in the process. Yeah, I recall uh, an argument or an attention, but I recall an argument in the. I want to say uh, it was in the uh, the 80s or the 90s. Uh, there was some sort of civil disobedience over uh, nuclear proliferation. And I believe Jimmy Carter's daughter, Amy Carter, was on trial. And I think Abby Hoffman was on trial, the activist with her as well. I'm doing this from memory, uh, Jim, so I could have it all wrong. But it's a long time ago. The argument that um, their lawyer made, their defense lawyer, it's not that they – he didn't – question the issues at hand like did they 
trespass on private property for the protest. His issue was this was a legitimate uh, issue for them uh, to be attacking. Uh, the policy of nuclear arms was uh, illegitimate, illegitimate. And I think he won. I think he got the jury to let them go on the grounds that they're doing a just thing. So in their own twisted way, I suppose, here I'm bending over backwards to be kind, the Republicans could argue that they're doing this the same thing. Uh, to quote our favorite movie, they're saying that the, the law, the whole system is out of order. And so they're protesting against that. Well, and, and to just further that, just one more point on how, you, how that plays out in legal cases is effectively that's the term for that is jury nullification. Yeah. That the, the lawyer for the defense, whether it's a criminal or a civil case, is essentially saying uh, they're not even they don't they may acknowledge whatever it was if they're trying to buy some credibility or sound reasonable, mm -hmm. but they might otherwise just ignore whatever the the actual uh, facts are of the case and whether their client did something wrong or whether they did it at all and just focus on whether the it's even a fair thing uh, that that it shouldn't be fair at all to sue doctors for negligence or that. You know, you, you, somebody who jaywalks should never even be arrested in the first place. They're, they're using the jury to nullify the effect of the law, irrespective of whether the crime or the, the negligence was actually committed. And that's effectively what the Republicans are doing right now. That's exactly. And, and honestly, that is their, that's the only, well, usually <laughs> what that also means is there is no defense on the merits. There's no defense on any of the facts. There's no controversy about the thing. So the, the last resort, you know, if, if anything, maybe it could be interpreted as a good thing in the sense that they got nothing else. Uh, you don't really go for jury nullification unless you have no other meritorious defenses to something. And that seems to be their, besides the fact that they, that they know they'll never have enough votes to stop impeachment getting referred to the Senate for a trial. Yeah. Um, it's, it's like they're, I think they're also trying to set the stage for, um, what again would be some sort of like a, it'd be jury nullification. Yeah. If, if even if 51 Republicans, because they have the power to do so, acquit the president in the Senate, they could, none of them in good faith off the record after a cocktail or something could actually say to you, yeah, he's completely innocent. And they would, you know, they'd know, they know No, that everybody up there knows. I, and I've said this many times, the, the analogy to the OJ case is, 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 is the truest. Uh, and it's so ironic on many levels because many of the Republicans uh, who are using Johnny Cochran's tactics, uh, in this case to defend Donald Trump, uh, were those the most livid back in 1995 when Johnny Cochran successfully convinced that jury, uh, essentially jury nullification, to uh, uh, acquit O.J. Simpson of the, the charge of murdering his wife and soon thereafter uh, Chris Rock did a, a routine which I've alluded to many times in the show where it, the gist of it is is that uh, when black people are alone and there are no white people around they say of course OJ did it so that's the equivalent of you saying when Republicans are sitting around drinking of course Donald Trump violated the law of course he should have uh, should be impeached but uh, uh, they would never admit that in public all right now let's get to there were uh, the merits of what uh, the um, the law professors argued yesterday. There were three law professors who were uh, essentially uh, uh, representing the Democratic point of view, and then there was a fourth, Jonathan Turley, who was representing the Republican point of view. Turley is an interesting case. We'll hold him off for last. Uh, summarize and, and give your uh, account of what you thought about the, what the three Democratic law professors uh, articulated. Well, they were all basically on the same page. Um, I think it's Gerhardt, Feldman, and Carlin were the three professors. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously well-qualified. And for the parts that I was able to listen to, you know, I've read some accounts. That I didn't, <laughs> couldn't spend the entire day listening to all the testimony. It went on for a long time. Yes, um, but especially for the first 45 minutes or an hour, what I was impressed by was, uh, and I, I think I heard somebody else made this comment, echoing what I'd already thought was, they were clearly they are clearly good lawyers in that they are intelligent, but they also understand the law and then can do the the most complicated and most important thing if you're gonna be a good lawyer, which is deal with something that is complicated and complex and explain it in a way that's not and in a way that's not going to f confuse whoever it is that you're trying to explain this to. So they were explaining the the risks, the stakes, 
and the purpose of the Constitution in a very straightforward way. You know, effectively telling us some of the things that are important here, that if you have uh, the fundamental issue with any abuse of office is that if the person can use that power of their office and abuse it in a way that furthers their power, you're effectively, you're rendering useless either re-election issues or, or whether the person can be held accountable in any way. And, if you're, and we're talking specifically about a unique position in the president. So if he can use the powers of his office abusively to keep himself in office and break the rules, well, then none of the rest of the rules will matter anymore. So whether it's on the issue of of uh, impacting improperly and illegally the, the 2020 election, he can perpetuate his own staying in that office and there's nothing anybody can do about it. There's no, well, let's just hold an election. No, the, he's already he's already monkeyed with that whole process. We can't trust that it will actually be, a, it won't, it'll be a meaningless election. And then the flip side, the second half of all of it was the obstruction of justice, meaning if part of the complaint, and I think it is not a complete main in good faith from uh, the president's defenders in Congress is where are the rest of these witnesses? We haven't heard from them. Um, Their, their point there is similarly, if the, if the office of the president, the one of the three branches of government is allowed to obstruct completely and without merit and without qualification, the power of Congress, another of the three branches then it renders Congress basically powerless mm-hmm. completely because it wouldn't just stop with don't participate in this particular subpoena. It would, it would trickle all the way and, and permeate all the way to any other part of congressional oversight. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that, that those three, three professors did a very nice job of making things stri- simple, straightforward. Uh, like the analogy that the professor Carlin had about Louisiana, like using it, making a domestic example. If you needed aid in your state and the president said, well, you know, FEMA's on its way, but I'm not sure if those buses are going to make it unless you uh, make sure to go have a press conference and say that, that Joe Biden or whoever, whoever you want to demonize in that situation is under investigation. Oh, I, 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 I really like that one. That was uh, Professor uh, Carlin, yeah, P- uh, Pamela Carlin uh, from Stanford. Stanford. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if you remember this one. There's a, a real life uh, analogy there. Uh, it happened in the state of New Jersey in about 2013, uh, where uh, aides to then Governor Chris Christie blocked off exits from a bridge. I think it was the George Washington Bridge, but don't quote me on it. Fort Lee, New Jersey, For, right? Yes, very good for knowing that. And uh, there was utter chaos, traffic jams forever. And it later turned out that they were extorting the local mayors of those towns that uh, were from that you needed those exits and entrances to support Chris Christie's reelection campaign. And it was a huge political fallout. There was a great uh, investigation. It probably did as much as anything to uh, d- destroy Chris Christie's career. He had no credibility after that. And I didn't hear uh, anybody arguing that uh, there was any justification for what Chris Christie's aides had done what the argument was whether Chris Christie knew about it at the time somehow or other he he avoided I don't know how he did it but they blamed the aides like Michael Cohen is in jail now and Trump is the president but they blame the aides but they're all run like criminal organizations. I don't know what it is about these guys from the from the, the general New Jersey New York corridor. I know Trump, Chris Christie. Yeah, uh, yeah like in that case, protect the boss. The boss says, yeah, uh, plausible deniability, plausible deniability sure. a Reagan term. But yeah, that was that was a great uh, analogy. And I don't know how you can undercut. Uh, what, there's no effective counterpunch to that analogy that anybody could would buy, right? No, I mean, because of in that situation, and, you know, I don't even think that there's much of a dispute over whether if this was provable, even from Turley, which I know we're going to get to him in a second, if there was crystal clear proof, which I think in most people's mind, if you're fair-minded about this, there's definitely enough proof. But if there was, like if Zelensky came out and said, yes, I felt pressure, and yes, they told me on August 10th, even before I had that phone call, um, no, there's no legitimate dispute over whether that's an abuse of power condition. I mean, conditioning a public act within your office 
upon something that you're being de- that you're demanding that benefits only you personally. That's it's as straightforward a formulation as you can have. Yeah, it was. Uh, I thought that uh, they made that really clear, particularly uh, Professor uh, uh, Carlin. Now let's get to uh, Jonathan Turley, law professor at George Washington. Uh, he's from Chicago originally, for what it's worth, and uh, he was the Republican witness. Uh, and he argued uh, that there was not enough evidence to continue go forth with the impeachment. Was that essentially his argument? That, and I think his labradoodle also was, was not satisfied <laughs> with the sufficiency of the evidence. There was something in there. I, yeah. He was trying to humanize himself yeah. a little bit. I don't know if it worked, but um, he, uh, yeah. So I, I actually had, the, there's a quote that I wrote down here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this was echoed in his 25 or 30 page report that he also submitted to the committee. Yeah. If the house proceeds solely on the Ukrainian allegations, that's an important qualification to start with, but Mm -hmm. this impeachment would stand out among modern impeachments as the shortest proceeding with the thinnest evidentiary record and the narrowest grounds ever used to impeach a president. Now there's a lot of qualifications in there. I don't know which, which ones are the modern impeachments. Yeah. There's only been one since 1867 or 68. Uh, Nixon wasn't actually impeached. But the other thing about the narrowest grounds possible, I I don't, why would that make any difference? Whether it's based upon one act of public abuse of office, especially if it's of a great magnitude, which I don't think that he ever tried to say that if this was proven, it wouldn't be of a great magnitude because it's, fundamentally trying to upend a future election. Yeah. Um, but even that, like, you know, bribery is a pretty specific thing. And even if you called it narrow, it's too big of a deal to just, I don't understand the distinction. I don't understand his criticism of it. Uh, and he had trouble defending it in my opinion, as he, as he went through the day. Um, he basically, what he was left with was, I just don't think there's enough. And he did emphasize some, some, you know, issue with how quickly things have been done. I mean, in some sense, the whistleblower complaint became, uh, they became aware of it and then it was made public that there was one in early September. So it's only been a little, like almost three months, if Mm -hmm. you want to call that quick. But the next election is less than a year away now. So uh, there's nothing in the Constitution that says you need to take your time with any of this. But well, Yes, he. I, I agree with you that um, that particular argument makes no sense. You know, it's like saying, "Well, uh, you're acute, you're charging this man with burglary, uh, but that's not enough. You sh- you're not charging him with murder as well. So just let let him go." Well, burglary is a violate is a violation of the law. You know, when, when right. you, so uh, yeah, it's kind of absurd this, uh, to uh, his argument. Not why he he would bother. Uh, to present that. I thought the, the strongest argument he made, and one that I'm very sympathetic to, is that there's not been enough information uh, gathered at this stage, uh, and that there's testimony uh, that should be um, uh, heard from key White House aides, uh, John Bolton, for one, sure. and uh, and the the president's lawyer Rudy Giuliani uh, for another. So there's a, there's a whole group of uh, Donald McCann. I think there's there's several. Uh, there's, uh, there's a whole list. I think the, and the, the the Democrats actually listed all the congressional aides that they want to hear from and that the, the President Trump won't allow them uh, to hear. I thought that uh, there's a merit to that. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean. Part of the formulation that the Intelligence Committee came up with in writing their report that referred this to the Judiciary Committee was the second half of this um, list of, of problems or, the, or the, the second part of the list of kind of how this all permutes through, meaning it starts with the removal of an ambassador, but then eventually a lot of these things trail off, even though there, we have a, a memorandum of the call itself that's when the obstruction comes into play. You have John Bolton, you have Don McGahn. From, and Don McGahn doesn't even have anything to do with Ukraine. He was already out by the time this all started. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure exactly when this started. We, we, there's there's a, everybody, I think there's very reasonable, uh, there's evidence to base a belief on that this started long before uh, July of 2019. But um, those are those are witnesses that would have factual information about this 
transaction, Bolton in particular, who's quoted by other people, who's quoted as referring to this as a drug deal that uh, that Gordon Sondland was engaged in uh, and that he wanted no part of. And his behavior, at least what, what has been publicly reported, and he's a famous leaker, so he's probably the source of this information, <laughs> um, right. but saying that, you know, he <laughs> told other people, go yeah. to the lawyers with this. I think it's kind of fishy, but he wasn't he didn't take any actions himself to be a whistleblower. He may or may not have gone to lawyers. Don't know for sure because he didn't leak that part of the information. I'm sure he did. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, he would be a witness that is very insightful. But who, whichever side of this you're on, I think everybody would be nervous about what he might say. Uh, I don't think there's any real clear idea of whether he would what he would say would end up being indicting the president by saying that he himself knew and could tell you why there was proof that this actually was extortion mm -hmm. or whether he's going to do something else to protect himself or to protect the president. Because the thing that seems to matter most to John Bolton besides his own career is uh, furthering of a very belligerent foreign policy. Mm -hmm. And as long as the president is engaged in that, I mean, that's probably the reason why he's not involved himself up to this point and sort of, uh, stepped aside because yeah. of, because the rest of it's still kind of playing out without him having to be involved in it. Yeah, well, the, and uh, the real interesting thing about John Bolton, uh, he uh, Trump selected him for his position after having seen him uh, on TV, on Fox, giving commentary on Fox TV. Even though he wouldn't shave his mustache. Yeah, even though he <laughs> it'd be like it's somebody, like George Steinbrenner with the Yankees. I was nobody just about was, to say nobody was allowed to have sideburns. Yeah, but he made an exception. He made an exception. Like if if George Steinbrenner said, "Okay, Oscar Gamble, you can have that afro, and uh, you still play for the New York Yankees," I was you stole my thought. You must be from the East. Are you from the East? Because you knew about Fort I'm, Lee and you knew I'm, the George Steinbrenner thing. I'm just a student of the news, I guess. Uh, yeah, I really impressed that you knew the Fort Lee thing. Um, but uh, anyway, the, uh, the 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 part that I agree with John Jonathan Turley on, and I will be making this case uh, for as long as I have a microphone or a pen and paper, is that I do, I first of all, I want this proceeding to drag on throughout the calendar year uh, 2020 for many different reasons. Uh, so that's one. I'm very upfront about that, okay, for political reasons. So I'm just, I'm putting it out there. Republicans pretend they don't have any political, uh, there's no motiva political motivations in them. I'm not, I'm being honest. I want it to drag out. I want it to be an issue in the upcoming presidential race. I think American voters should be forced to come face to face with this man that was elect, they elected president and now are deciding on whether to reelect. Mm. They should come face to face to how he behaves. But secondly, how can you render a judgment uh, if people aren't testifying? And in a, in, a, in a court of law, can you compel a witness to testify? Don't they? Can't they plead the fifth? Well, so yeah, and I mean, your point is very well taken in the sense that these witnesses could they could even have exculpatory evidence that helps Donald Trump. I mean, who knows? Um, <clears throat> and you wouldn't. In theory, in an ideal world, you would never proceed on the merits without getting all of the evidence before the tribunal. Jury, judge, Senate, whoever it is that's going to be rendering a judgment, they should be seeing everything. That's what subpoenas are for. Mm -hmm. That's what the court process that you can use and get a you know, Cook County Sheriff to go pick somebody up if they refuse to show up at court or get a uh, Justice Department can send out a U.S. Marshal to bring a witness into court if they just refuse to testify. Um, that's why, th I mean, that goes to the heart of why this is such an offensive obstruction that the president publicly said right out to the cameras. Yeah, we're, I'm telling everyone, ignore all these subpoenas or whatever mob language he used at the time. I mean, that, that's, that is completely, an that is absolutely 100% an affront to the oath of his office, the constitution and the administration of justice in the United States of America. You, you, and, to your, now, your other question about pleading the fifth, witnesses could come in and say, I don't have any information, or I choose to exercise my Fifth Amendment right uh, against self-incrimination, and I, I can't answer that question on advice of counsel. Mm -hmm. That all could happen, too. But they didn't even do that. No. I mean, that's that's... That, that that would be, at least in that particular... So you take... The difference there would be between um, the whole, I guess, administrative branch, the executive branch, just making this a policy decision 
versus the individual who then has the right, if his own interests are in jeopardy, to make his own decisions when he's in that witness box based upon what he talked about with his lawyer. Well, then, and think about this. Think about this if the American public, the voting public, is a, a, essentially the jury. See, ultimately, we all, I think, agree that the Senate will acquit Donald Trump. They will not impeach him, okay? That's, there's some of my guests who say, no, Ben, there's a chance. But I think that most people think the Senate will acquit him. So the larger jury, the one that has the ultimate power, are the voters of the United States of America. And this trial will be for their benefit. Mm -hmm. And so they may not want to pay attention to it. It may be uh, boring to some. It may be, uh, some may think it's unfair. But the longer it's in the news, the longer people are coming in Congress and it's being covered, the more they're going to have to address it. And ultimately, they're going to have to make a decision based on what's put in front of their faces uh, on uh, how guilty or innocent they think Donald Trump is. And if you have a series, just follow me on this, if you have a series of White House aides that come before Congress and plead the fifth, I man, Americans, they know one thing about the fifth. That's what mobsters plead. And, uh, I think I think your president once said that. That did, only only guilty people use the did fifth. Did he say that? Absolutely. I, he said Donald Trump said that when he was a candidate, I think. He said or that. maybe after he got sworn in. Yeah. So that so I welcome it. And and so whether they uh testify, plead the fifth, uh or testify under oath that Donald Trump is innocent of all charges, whatever. They're going to be cross-examined, by the way. Uh, so they're facing potential perjury charges. Uh, I welcome it. I, I just feel it's like from my first argument for uh, make not proceeding until we hear uh, from them is just from the notion of transparency. I want the most open and transparent process in the world. I want as much information as I can. I don't know how anybody could argue against that. Well, uh, to, I guess, to uh, make you feel a little bit better, that was one of the decisions that came down in the past week was an appellate decision about whether Don McGahn must testify. Mm -hmm. I don't know how long it's going to take for the Supreme Court to weigh in on that. That's a problem. That, that goes to the how quickly could this actually affect itself. Um, you know, uh, the only other thing I would think about, um, if part of what you're saying is a critique of how the House is going about the pace of this and where they're at, and and the fact that they're, if, what they're, if what's on paper right now in the HSPCI report, the, the Select Committee on Intelligence's report, if that is the plan, if it's here's the facts we know plus obstruction, equals impeachment, and that's our case to say he should be removed from office, then I think one other thing that they must be considering is it's a pretty big wild card what's actually going to happen in the Senate. Yes. So if you're, if you, the, I think the longer you push this out to March or April, let's say, the more likely it would be that Mitch McConnell would just cut the whole thing and I think his political calculus ends up being, can I get away with that? If it's January, it's harder to get away with that and say, hey, listen, people, we've got to pass bills and it's time to go run for re-election for one third of our you know, members here, or 23 Republicans had to go run in 2020. And there's no time for this now and, and it's too close to an election. Because, I mean, he's not above any of that, but the question is what political fallout there might be for him. He's running for re-election. So... If you're further into 2020, I think there is an increased likelihood of some kind of procedural motion to dismiss, whatever, that uh, nobody really knows what button he might try to push. He's about Mitch McConnell. I'm, yeah. Right. So I'm thinking that House leadership, Pelosi, um, Schiff, Nadler, and the rest, um, that may be one reason why they've decided this is the formulation. We know what we have. We got some very brave witnesses to go render very effective testimony about what we do know. It isn't perfect. We have a, but we have a, a call that <laughs> no matter how perfect the president's going to assert that it is, it, it's like, there's your smoking gun. It says it right there. Yeah. Do us a favor though. 
And uh, I loved hearing people refer to it. it. It's the royal us. It's not like he was he he wants to claim somehow this was for the United States' purposes. No, not when you have people testifying that everybody knew. Yeah, it didn't matter if these investigations ever happened. It didn't matter if they did any work. What mattered was an announcement of an investigation, which fundamentally means it has nothing to do with corruption. Yeah. And it's definitely not in the, in the interest of the United States. So you just can't spin it any other way yeah. when you put those two things when you together. Put those th- now, okay. And you're, you're sort of um, branching off from legal arguments uh, into political arguments. Uh, and the greatest political argument I could make for dragging it out, this is purely political. I'll go back to the legal in a little while. The greatest argument I would make is that if it, if they follow the, the uh, calendar they're on right now, uh, this matter will be resolved in February or March. Mm-hmm. And that's a long time uh, in the public's mind before November. Lots of things will happen to, for, I guarantee you that Senate will vote to acquit uh, based on the case they have now. I, all right, that's what I believe. And so it'll, it, there's a chance politically that it won't be effective as a tool and a tactic against Trump in the next election. Well, could this could the House then be the ones to drag this out and not worry about when they refer? That's exactly and, and what I'm McCann advocating. And drag uh, Bolton in there and have I, him I, testify. That's what I'm advocating. And I know Nancy Pelosi is a huge fan of this show. I'm urging you to do exactly that. And now I'll make the legal argument for it. And I think I, I said to you this off air, but I'll say it right now. Donald Trump is making an argument that to me, I would think most Americans would oppose if they concentrated on it. And that is that uh, his office, the presidency, is above the law and does not have to abide by congressional subpoenas. Everybody else in the country has to abide by a subpoena. Everybody. I had a, uh, a lawyer come on this show, Jim, uh, April Perar. She's a criminal defense lawyer here in the city of Chicago. And she talked about a client of hers, a young man, 20 years old, I want to say. Uh, he was dragged from Louisiana all the way to Chicago. Marshals went down, picked him up, brought him to Chicago uh, to force to testify. He wasn't even a defendant. He was called as a witness to testify in a case, uh, a criminal case here at uh, 26 and Cal. And it, it, the way he was treated, uh, the, the way he was shackled, I don't know if he's shackled, but he brought, dragged across the country and kept, kept in jail for a while while they held him in jail because the trial didn't start right away. Um, that talked about uh, the fundamental power of a subpoena mm-hmm. and how you must abide by it. So I want to hear Trump and his lawyers argue in a court of law that they are above that subpoena, that they have greater power than Congress and they could defy Congress. And then I want to see, I think he'll lose at every step of the way, every judicial uh, ruling will go against him and it gets to the Supremes. Then I want to see five Supreme Court justices sign on to uh, a ruling that makes our president an emperor. That is, a, that is absolutely what it would mean. I, I, I like where you're at with that because I, I think that the reality is uh, I don't know that even the hardcore right-wing justices on that Supreme Court could actually sign on to that because they know what it means. Like this isn't something where they could pretend like it'll just be a narrow ruling or that it'll only have some narrow impact once it's done. They know that that's the broader import of it, that it basically is, it, well, and more than anything else, it would obviously be antithetical to the Constitution itself. There isn't any fair reading of the Constitution that says if Congress issues a subpoena, the president gets to decide whether it has merit. Mm-hmm. That, that's not in here. <laughs> it's up to the president to decide. That's yeah. what they've been saying all along. Yeah, yeah. Steve Mnuchin completely ignored a, a duly issued subpoena for the president's tax returns and the vice president's tax returns, something that's in a statute that says he has to follow it, saying that he didn't believe that it had the legislative purpose that uh, Congress needs to have. When, by the way, it's not required to have a legislative, like in that particular instance, the legislative purpose part isn't even relevant Mm -hmm. because there's already a law that says that they have to turn over some number of years when Congress asks for them because that's what was written in the law. That's actually what they put in there. So that wasn't even a thing where, you know, this is just based upon Congress's general power to subpoena. So 
so far they've gotten away with it, but it could also just be because it gets bogged down into politics. And maybe Americans would be, it would be more stark if it was, if the Supreme Court was forced to weigh in on this. You know, it doesn't get lost in the muck of, oh, that's just another president's tax return things and half the country already decided this doesn't matter. Well, I got news for you. And, and the way that that clock works, that, that case could be heard over the summer leading into, yeah. uh, leading into the election. I mean, again, the, the legal dovetails with the political and what I'm talking about. Uh, we had, there are political ramifications for this. Uh, it's in Donald Trump's best interest to end this as far away from the election as possible. So it's in the Democrats' best interest to continue it right up to the election, even if it's not resolved, Jim. When Even if we're mm-hmm. still dis- discussing this uh, March of 2021, uh, presumably the Democrats will hold on to the House and let's say Donald Trump gets reelected. Well, we could still be yeah. arguing a pr- obstruction of justice case based on his refusal uh, to allow John Bolton to testify. Uh, and, uh, so I think there's, and then there's the legal one that that's very important law. Now, are you afraid that the, if the judges, uh, effectively rule with Donald Trump, they'll be eradicating, uh, the Congress as a third branch? Well, that, that's what it would mean. I, am I afraid that that's a possibility for the outcome? I don't know. I, I, I've lost a lot of trust in whether or not that institution actually is going to uphold the law. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of constitutional type lawyers who would say, no, it, it'll be fine. That's not, they wouldn't rule that way. Um, but the, you know, th- there's, there's been some very extreme rulings in the past 10 years that have really changed the American electorate. The Heller ruling about, about uh, creating an individual right to bear arms mm-hmm. in this country uh, the Citizens United ruling basically saying that all all money equals speech and therefore you can't put limits on any of it. And even dark money, you don't have to declare who's talking. It doesn't matter. Uh, as I mean, I don't even think you'd have this president if it wasn't for Citizens United yeah. at a minimum. Because a lot of the things that happened with uh, the the stealing of emails and the way that was all that all went together and held together uh, probably couldn't have happened. Some of the and and some of the financing probably couldn't have happened had that not been the law. Uh, so yeah, so I um, so I'm I'm, a, I'm I'd like to say they understand that the the interplay between the three branches would be completely decimated. Absolutely, like you said, you'd be the decision is we have an emperor. Yeah, and does I mean no matter how right wing they might be about social issues or thinking that the government's too big, do, does even Clarence Thomas does he really want to have an emperor? Well, I think Clarence Thomas would make render any decision that benefits the Republican Party. I think he's out and out partisan. I, I know, but I'm, that's but that's that's my rhetorical yeah, question. Yeah. At that point, it's like even he even does does he want an emperor? Does, uh, does he want an? It depends who the know. emperor is. He doesn't want Bernie Sanders as an sure, emperor, right. but he may take Donald Trump. Uh, so this is why I'll be advocating uh, for drag it out. I'm with Turley on. The, I I don't know why what Turley's ultimate. Mo, uh, motive is or purposes for saying uh, that there's not enough evidence now, but I'm, I'm definitely for uh, resolving this and getting at the, and that also it gets the issue of obstruction of justice. Uh, if they're uh, preventing witnesses who have a worthwhile testimony to offer from appearing that what is, what else is that, but obstruction of justice? Well, and maybe the other question is like, what else does the upshot of any of this? If you, if you, let's say for somehow miraculously, this actually was enough to have Trump removed from office. And so that let, we stop the investigation here, kind of put freeze everything. Mm-hmm. And all you had was the evidence of obstruction up to this point. And he got his hand slapped for that and got kicked out of office. You still wouldn't really have the issue resolved. You, you know, effectively it would, it would say that this conduct wasn't okay by impeachment standards, but it wouldn't really prevent a future president from doing more obstruction. They would just roll the dice on whether or not it would be enough to be impeached again. Yeah. So I, I, I do think it would be useful to have some, I don't know. Well, I guess maybe that's the other, I'm sitting here as a, as for a legal show. Why should it be necessary for the Supreme court to say that the president has to answer subpoenas? I don't, I, I mean, obviously they're, they're refusing. They are in the process of ignoring them, but 
that's the kind of thing that's so fundamental. Like other lawyers who are not in a partisan political battle would look at each other like, well, of course he has to answer. I mean, then you can go down to the mayor. The mayor doesn't have to, I mean, any executive right. doesn't have to, they're very busy people. They're, uh, you can make the same arguments in principle for any ex- chief executive. It's an argument that creates absolute power. That's correct. And uh, all right, and then uh, the final point, uh, your favorite attorney general, uh, William Barr, I say that with a smile. Uh, Jim's been noted to criticize William Barr. Really went off the deep end this time. Where I think it was a speech he gave where he effectively said that communities protest uh, against police should not get police protection. Your general thoughts on that comment from our attorney general? He is in a position of enforcing the law. So it means something when he says something like that. And uh, that kind of a statement is so fundamentally wrong in terms of, I mean, at a minimum, how offensive is that to the First Amendment? The freedom to assemble, the freedom of speech. Okay, you want to exercise your First Amendment freedoms? Then somebody comes and robs your house. I don't think the police should come and help you. Tough, because you didn't like the fact that your neighbor got shot by a cop. Mm-hmm. I mean, wh- what kind of a statement is that? That's it, It's... He's done a lot of things since he took this position that were nefarious, shady, questionable. But this is so obviously offensive, and and so it's it's so um, it's, it's it's like not what you are supposed to be as a law enforcement officer. You're you're an attorney general. You're not only enforcing the law, but you're going out and and ordering which cases gets get prosecuted, what are the priorities of the Justice Department for this entire country. You know, they go around and do investigations of whether local police offices, office or police departments are following the Constitution and doing things in a, in a legal way. Uh, if these are, if th- this is a reflection of his beliefs, he doesn't belong in that office. That's just wrong. Well, maybe uh, this will drag on for so long that in 2021, they'll still be impeaching Donald Trump. When they're done with him, they'll impeach William Barr. William Barr really has crossed the line. It's remarkable. I, and, you know, like we were talking about as we were talking about the show today, he has been in the process. One of his other shady, nefarious things is going around trying to undermine his own Justice oh, Department's yeah. mm-hmm. determination about what intelligence community, uh, the intelligence community's conclusions about the 2016 election, which what uh, what's what purpose does that serve? Like put aside, like, you know, the fact that what he's really trying to do is help Trump look better. But what good does it do just in general? We've already they made thorough findings about what was there. And there's no reason to question any of the evidence at this point. Even if you go back to the origins and there was something questionable there, the rest of the evidence was so crystal clear. It just doesn't matter. Why would you spend any resources on this? Obviously, the purpose is Donald Trump is mad. He thinks that any questions about 2016 make him look weak and less than legitimate. And for whatever disgusting bargain that's been made, William Barr is willing to go out and use any resources to effectuate that, to to make Trump feel better. Yeah, you know, and uh, I'll leave it with this. Uh, Watching uh, Barr uh, in action, I think I said this the last time we were in the show, makes me miss uh, Sessions. You know, I, I, I would have told you, I, I didn't think I'd ever say that either. Those words would come out. Honestly, like, the man, he, he did recuse himself. He tried to, you know, uh, there's a lot of things in criminal justice that he and I would not agree upon, but at least he had some sense of duty to the office. On, on that one uh, aspect. All right, uh, Jim Coogan. Uh, thank you. One plug in before we go. Go ahead. Uh, Get so, to it. So I'm, I'm a big <laughs> fan and a big supporter of the Greater Chicago Food Depository. There was a very unfortunate... Uh, decision that was made in the, I guess it's the Health and Human Services Department this week. They have changed the rules for eligibility for SNAP benefits. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, I, you know, I always, I always have to double check this number whenever I'm talking about this with people. SNAP benefits, food stamps, it's, it's the popular mm-hmm. term for yeah. it. But uh, depending on how many people in your household, we're talking about somewhere between 200 and maybe six or $700 a month. This isn't a windfall for anyone, but the new work eligibility requirements are going to kick several hundred thousand people off of SNAP benefits right now, possibly like next week. Uh, And depending on how long it's allowed to to work and whether any changes are made by next year, another three million, maybe four million people could lose their eligibility for it. Uh, I'm sure you could always find one instance of waste, fraud and abuse or something like that. But everybody who's on these benefits this is the difference between worrying about your next meal 
and being able to pay the heating bill or choosing between the two. I mean, maybe they make a few thousand dollars a year, but they're right on the edge. And the difference every week of, of 20 extra bucks actually makes a difference of whether they go hungry that night or whether their kids go hungry that night. So if the federal government is not going to step up, I would just urge all your listeners to look at any food bank, any food organization. The Greater Chicago Food Depository is like one of the most amazing organizations in the world. They supply other other food banks. They are the hub for distributing food and resources to food banks throughout the Chicago, greater Chicago region. Actually, it's like the whole north uh, northeast corner of Illinois. Um, so I just wanted to plug them as, a, A, they're a great organization. B, I don't like what, uh, what they did this week to food stamp benefits. And uh, since it's the holidays, this is always a great time to remember that it's something you can do for other people. I think it's well said. And uh, yeah, so you could fight it on two fronts. Uh, fight the power uh, uh, by protesting uh, the decision by the Trump administration and then uh, sort of fight the outcome uh, as much as you can by uh, donating to the food depository. So I think you're absolutely right on that one, Jim Coogan. Uh, to quote uh, my last guest, uh, Nick Spazzato, uh, uh, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. I won't see you until January. Uh, I'm teasing, laughing when I say because Nick, Alderman Nick Spazzato said, don't say Happy Holidays. <laughs> he hates Happy Holidays. So uh, anyway, the best to you and your family. Have a great Christmas and New Year's, and I'll see you next year. Happy Holidays, Merry Christmas, everything else, Ben, all the best. Thanks very much for a, it's been a good year doing this show it, it's a lot of fun very good that's jim coogan i'm ben jarofsky take care everyone that's correct <laughs> look around you can find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding right your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.